based on what we know, who is the most prolific penman of the New Testament? Several of you are saying Paul. Paul is correct based on the number of books. But based on sheer volume, number of words, verses, or pages, Paul is not the correct answer. Based on sheer volume, Luke is the most prolific penman of the New Testament. We ascribe 13 books to the Apostle Paul, two to Luke. But in those two books of the New Testament is about 28% of the material of the New Testament. Luke wrote about 100 more verses as it is divided in our New Testament than the Apostle Paul. The number of words are more, the number of pages are more. And so based on sheer volume, Luke is actually the most prolific penman of the New Testament. The gospel according to Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. And Acts is the third longest book in the New Testament, both penned by Luke. Luke wrote both of these books, which in a way are actually one book in two volumes, because he wrote them to the same man, Theophilus, for the same purpose. In Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we find Luke penning these words. It seemed good to me also. Having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mayest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. We're beginning a series in the gospel according to Luke. And he's writing to this man by the name of Theophilus. We have yet to learn precisely who Theophilus is. Regardless, Luke wrote to establish him in the faith. Luke thoroughly presents the truthfulness of the gospel. The gospel, according to Luke, presents Jesus' work up to the ascension. And the book of Acts presents Jesus' work from that time Through the church of which you and I are a part. And so really, Jesus' work is continuing to be presented in Acts. No longer with him physically present here in the world. But his work through his apostles and through his church. And you and I get to be a part of that. One writer wrote that Luke's purpose was apparently not to provide a historical foundation for the Christian message. Rather, he has ordered the events of his narrative so as to bring out their significance, to persuade Theophilus, who is not so much concerned with the issue, did it happen, 
But he's more concerned with what happened and what does it all mean. And so Luke, by providing a more complete accounting of Jesus and his significance, Luke hopes to encourage active faith. And as we go through the gospel according to Luke, verse by verse, I think I told you a few weeks ago that up through the end of November, I think we'll be through chapter 11. But as we go through this verse by verse, that's the way I want us to approach the book. Let us come curious, intrigued, and desirous to know what happened. What it meant then, but also what it means for me now, for my life. With that brief introduction to the longest book of the New Testament, we're going to the end of chapter 2. Now you say, Pastor, if we're going through Luke verse by verse, why are we starting here? We'll return to chapter 1 and the earlier part of chapter 2 as we get closer to Christmas time. But for now, at the end of January, we're going to start here at the end of chapter 2. Have you ever been guilty of leaving your child behind somewhere or losing your child somewhere for a time? Parents, come on, raise your hand, admit it. You don't want to raise your hand, it's embarrassing, but we've mostly all done it, okay? Maybe you were in a car and, and you were traveling to go somewhere, you, you had been at church maybe, or at some other event you were going somewhere. I read as I was preparing, I've done it too, but, but I felt especially bad for the pastor I read about. This pastor went to be a, a guest speaker at another church. Left and went all the way home before he realized he left his kids at the church where he went to preach for. That would be awful. I've heard of another story of a pastor who preached a funeral and left and left his children at the funeral home. After he was done with the funeral. That would be bad too. Trauma right there. For you as a parent though, if you've ever been there, how did you feel about it? Did you feel like a failure of a parent? Did you wonder why things had been quiet for longer than normal? Two of our children are up in New York. We didn't leave them somewhere, but our two youngest are up in New York with their grandparents. And Stephanie laughed as she showed me, I think it was on Friday, our our watches will give us warnings when noise levels reach a certain decibel. And that happens a lot in our home. And she showed me on Friday laughing that she got a notification from her watch that it had been a week since she had reached that decibel level. And we knew why. Two of the noisy children aren't in the home right now. If you've ever left your child somewhere, though, you, as a parent, don't feel too great about that. As you went back to get your children, did you start imagining how you might find your child? Are they going to be standing somewhere all by themselves in tears, huddled in a corner in the fetal position? Will they be completely gone? Someone have thrown them in their vehicle and run off with them? Will I find them lying dead somewhere? 
You go through all those worst case scenarios, don't you, as a parent, when you've done that? Well, do you know, at the age of 12, this happened to Jesus. Luke chapter 2, we're going to read verses 41 through 52. But as I read, I'm going to pause here and there to make some comments to help us understand some of the intricacies of the biblical text. So Luke 2, verse 41, the Bible says here, in Luke 2, 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Now just remember here, the law required that Jewish males attend three feasts each year, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover, was a part of that feast. So when Luke 2.41 says they're going to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover, that is a part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which Jewish men were required to attend. So as Mary and Joseph are making this trip, which, by the way, was a 75-mile one-way trip from Nazareth on foot, This demonstrates their desire to please God, to obey God. Verse 42, and when he, Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. There are no intervening accounts of Jesus between the time he is young, I I would say the the last we really know of Jesus as far as time frame is when the wise men visited him and then he and his parents went back to, fled to Egypt and then came back from Egypt up into Nazareth. But as far as after that time, we don't have any accounts of Jesus' childhood. Everything that, that we would think or that we would assume is conjecture. But here, now he's 12 years old. Why bring this Story into account. Why, if there are no other stories of Jesus from the time he's a young child until he's an adult, why include this one? There are several reasons for that. Twelve was an important age for a Jewish boy. According to the Mishnah, which remember is the oral tradition, the commentary on God's written law and the traditions that were added to it. A Jewish boy became responsible for his actions as an adult at age 13. So by that point, a Jewish boy is considered a man. You're an adult. You're responsible for your own actions. And so at age 12, they began to transition instruction for Jewish boys to include this recognition that, hey, next year you're going to be an adult. You're going to be a man responsible for your own actions. It was also at that time culturally that a boy really began to learn his father's trade so that he could make a living for himself and help support the family. That's going to be important when we see what Jesus will say later in this text. Okay, so hold on to that. Continue in verse 43. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his father knew, or 
and his mother, excuse me, knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. How could this possibly happen? Parents, you've been there. You know how things like this can happen. In that time frame especially, you've got to remember that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are not traveling to Jerusalem and back home to Nazareth by themselves. They would travel for these required feasts in large groups, caravans. Groups of pilgrims would gather together and travel together. And as they traveled... The women and children would travel up in front, and the men would travel in the rear. So it's not unthinkable to assume that Mary thought Jesus is with Joseph and the other men, while at the same time, Joseph thinks that Jesus is up with Mary and the other children. That's a very plausible thought. Continue reading verse 45. And when they found him not, they returned back to Jerusalem seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. So for three days, Joseph and Mary do not know where Jesus is. They spend some time looking for him in the caravan, the group of pilgrims that they traveled with. They spent basically a full day traveling back to Jerusalem. They spend now two days looking for him all around the city. You say, Jerusalem must be a big city. It is. And especially during the pilgrim feast, the population of Jerusalem swelled. You find different numbers. Some even say into the millions during these pilgrimage feasts. Jesus was there, though, in the temple, astounding the religious leaders. How did Joseph and Mary seek for him? Mary says in verse number 48, we sought the what? Sorrowing. What does that mean? They were anxious and fearful. In fact, this word translated sorrowing is only used in two other places in the New Testament. It's used in Acts 20 and verse 38 where the Bible says that Paul told the Ephesian church leaders, this is the last time you're going to see me face to face. This is the last time you're going to meet me here in this world. And the Bible says the Ephesian leaders responded to that with sorrow. They were sad to hear that they would not see Paul again. But even more emphatically, this word is used in Luke 16, verses 24 and 25. That passage is where Jesus tells the story about the rich man in hell. 
And the Bible says that the rich man in hell lifted up his eyes toward Abraham's bosom being in torment. That word translated torment is the same word Mary uses here. Think about that. Mary used a word that the Bible says describes the anguish of those in hell. How bad do you think Mary felt that she didn't know where Jesus was? She felt bad. Look at verse number 49 now. And he, who is this? Jesus. 12-year-old Jesus. Said unto them, how is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Well, there's so much in Jesus's response here. How is it that ye sought me? Jesus is asking them here, not why did you seek me? Jesus is not asking them, well, where have you looked? It's as if Jesus is saying this. Why did you not know where to find me? Jesus is actually questioning Joseph and Mary. Why didn't you know exactly where to come look for me? And it's as if he's asking, why did you sorrow as you looked? Why were you anxious and fearful? Jesus was indicating with this question, they should have known where to find him and they should not have been anxious and fearful when they found he was not with them. By the way, I need to stop here for a moment and ask you the question. Do you know where to look for Jesus when you have misplaced him? At times in our lives, we look for Jesus because we cannot see him. We cannot feel him. We, we cannot hear him. And it's like we have lost or misplaced him. When that happens, do you know where to go to find him? You can find him where you know him to be. That's what Jesus was saying to Joseph and Mary. You should have known where I was. And when I came up missing, when you could not find me, you should have known where to go back to and find me. Friends, it may look a little different today than it did then, but you can still find and see Jesus today. If you've lost him, If you can't see him, hear him, or feel him in your life, go back to where you know him to be. Pastor, where is that? You can find him in the word. You can find him in prayer. You can find him in worship. Oh, and by the way, friends, you can find him in his father's house. Go to a Jesus-believing, Jesus-proclaiming, Jesus-loving church. You say, Pastor, I've been to a lot of churches, and they don't have it all together. You're right. No church does. But you will always find Jesus in and among his people. And so if you've lost him, go back and find him where you know him to be. 
As Jesus spoke to them, he also identified at least three crucial points in the second question he asked them. Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? In that question, Jesus identified first, he is the divine son. There are many out there who do not believe and who teach contrary to what the Bible teaches. They don't believe and they don't teach that Jesus is God. But friends, over and over again, the Bible reveals to us the truth that Jesus is God. Secondly, he he identified that his mission is to fulfill the Father's will. And then thirdly, his relationship with his heavenly father must take priority. Remember at 12, at 13, you're going to be a man. At 12, you're going to be learning your father's trade. Jesus reveals here, my father has a business for me. And that needs to be my priority. Continue reading verses 50 through 52. And they... Understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. In the text, Jesus sets an example for us. From this young age, listen, friend, he shows us what it is to love God. Our vision, you know it by heart at this point, I think. If you've forgotten, look on the banners behind me. To love God and love others. And do you know what I see in Luke 2, 41 through 52? I see a 12-year-old Jesus demonstrating what it is to love God. We desire to grow in our love for God and others. And we can learn from Jesus' example. How does he set the example for us in this text? How does he show us what it is to love God In the passage before us. Number one, I want you to note this. Jesus prioritized his relationship with God. Think about this. Long before he preached a message. Long before he did a miracle. Before he began his earthly ministry. Jesus prioritized his relationship with God above other things. Including other relationships. Jesus lived out what he would later teach as a requirement for discipleship. Listen to what he taught later in Luke chapter 14 verses 26 through 27 and verse 33. If any man come unto me. And hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters. Yea, and his own life also. He cannot what? Be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot what? 
be my disciple. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Discipleship represents giving one's first loyalty, love, and devotion. Jesus would teach that to be a follower of him is to be loyal to, to love, and be devoted to him first. And right here, as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus exemplified by example what he would later verbalize in his teaching. A commitment, a priority first to God. Do you know that these are the first recorded words of Jesus in all of the Bible? And the first recorded words of Jesus were to inform his parents that his relationship with his heavenly father must take priority. God does not desire you to hate your family. That was not the point of what Jesus would teach later. But God does demand that you love him more. Honestly, answer for yourself today. What relationship is more important to you than your relationship with God? As you think across the spectrum of human relationships that you have with a spouse, with a parent, with your children, or maybe there is some other human relationship that is closer to you than those. Is there a human relationship that you have that you are more committed to than you are your relationship with God? Is there any person who has more input or influence in your life than God has? One, one Christian writer wrote this, the greatest danger of idolatry comes not from what is bad, but from what is good, such as love and family relationships. The greatest threat to the best often comes from what is second best. Loving and committing to your family is good unless you love and commit to your family over Jesus. If that is true in your life, if that is true in your family, if family means more than following Jesus, if there is a relationship within your family that that person has more input and influence over you and your thinking and your decisions than Jesus does. Then Jesus himself said, you cannot possibly be my disciple. I have to have priority. You must love me more. My relationship with you must be more important. Your commitment must be to me first before the others. We all need to draw a line in the sand. You and I can make or break our year of loving God and loving others right here, right now. If we decide as God challenges us and convicts us 
that that human relationship is still more important. That that human relationship is still going to have more input or influence in my life than my relationship with God. If we decide right here, right now, that in that way I'm going to love someone more than I love God. If I'm going to follow someone before I follow God, then we might as well just stop right now. Because loving God requires that I prioritize my relationship with him. If some relationship, be it with a child, a spouse, a parent, or any other, means more to me than my relationship with God, I am missing out on what God says he wants. Spouses, encourage your spouse to seek God. His kingdom and his righteousness first. Not you, not your desires, not what you want out of life. Support your spouse in seeking God first, in pursuing Christ. Pray for them to commit to and grow in Christ. Parents. Take an active interest in your children, grandparents in your grandchildren, and teach them to worship and obey God above anything else. Encourage and support their choices to follow Jesus. It can be so easy to do otherwise, can it? I've seen it happen. I've had conversations with parents. I can remember many times, especially serving as a youth pastor, working with teens and their parents, especially. Traveling even as a representative for Pensacola. I can remember sitting in living rooms, hearing the stories of parents who refused to let their child go to a Christian college, though they felt that was God's call in their life because I I need them right here at home. I remember sitting across from a school teacher at the Christian school as she told me of her son's desire to go to a Christian college. And she said, I just can't let him go. That can happen in all of our lives with our children and our grandchildren. Young people. Those of you still living Within your parents' home. I want you to see that Jesus' commitment to his heavenly father did not cancel submission to his earthly parents. In reality, it strengthened it. Right after he told Joseph and Mary, my priority needs to be my relationship with God. The Bible tells us that though at that time they didn't understand him completely. He went to Nazareth with them and submitted himself to them. You see, if you're still living in your parents' home, especially young people, God wants you to submit to your parents, to their authority in your life. At the same time, you need to prioritize your relationship with God. Young people, your parents' faith will not get you to heaven. And in the same token, your parents' walk with Christ will not suffice for your walk with Christ. You can't bank on their closeness to God. You need to be close to God. Follow the example of Jesus. Prioritize your relationship 
with God. That must be number one. Secondly, not only do we see that Jesus prioritized his relationship with God, but he prioritized his commitment to God. Look again at verse number 49. And he said unto them, how is it that you sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? I must be about my father's business. That was the focus of Jesus. His father's business. At that moment, as a 12-year-old boy, his father's business included being in the temple where he worshipped God and heard God's word proclaimed. He knew that's what God wanted for him right then. In John 4, it included going through Samaria, where he met and ministered to a cast-out Samaritan woman beside the well. Do you remember the story? He wasn't going to go around Samaria like they typically did. He went through. He stopped at that well. The disciples went into town. The woman came out. Jesus ministered to her. The disciples came out and thought it was amazing that Jesus was talking with the Samaritan woman. And he told his disciples, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Has someone else given him food to eat? No. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. In Luke 19, his father's business included the search for the lost so that he might save them. And we could give over and over again examples of this. His father's business culminated on a hill just outside where he spoke these words. On that hill, he was nailed to an old rugged cross. There he shed his blood. He laid down his life. And so often we focus on the night before that in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he bowed his head before the Father and he said, Not my will, but thine. But friends, I want you to see that that commitment did not start right then. Jesus identified that commitment as a 12-year-old boy when he said, I must be about my father's business. As a 12-year-old boy, Jesus was committed to the will of God above anything else. He was committed to the work of God for him. 21 years later, that work took him to a cross. Where he laid down his life to secure your salvation. And he asks you now. Take up your cross and follow me. Are you committed to the father's business? Honestly answer today. To what am I committed more than I am to God and his work? Can you look into your life and see where the cares of this world, the pleasures of this world, the things of this life, the temporal things, have more of your commitment than the work of God? What God wants to do in you For you and 
through you. Jesus was unique. His relationship with his heavenly father was unique. His calling from God was unique. Yet we too must be about our father's business. God's mission for the world should be my mission. And friends, don't miss this truth. God's plan to redeem the world involves us all. Not one of us. Not a fraction of us. Not a percentage of us. God's work to redeem the world includes all of us. And that work must come first. Jesus exemplified what that looks like. As just a 12 year old boy. From this early age, with his first recorded words, Jesus showed us what love for God above all else looks like. And if we desire to grow in our love for God and others, let us follow his example. Love for God is demonstrated through prioritizing our relationship with God and our commitment to God's work. I love the challenge of the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. The words are so powerful and meaningful. I'm going to ask us to sing it together and think about it as we sing it. So I'm going to ask Stephanie to come. She's going to play it. I think you know it. If you don't, grab your hymn book, look in the index, you'll find the number. And Stephanie's going to get us started, and I want us to sing it together. And as we do, really think about the words of the song, especially the challenge that comes at the end. Join me in singing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Blood. 
necessitates understanding his love for us better. And the songwriter Isaac Watts, who wrote that song during the 19th century, filled the song with theology and wrote it in such a way that it calls for a response from the singer. According to hymn scholar Lionel Addy, the lines, all the vain things that charm me most I sacrifice them, have a personal meaning to each singer. One that might require either action or renunciation. And then the three pledges at the climax of the end, the hymn. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. In generations past, those were viewed in some places as a sacrifice only required of those taking vows as a monk. But in reality, in the New Testament, Jesus said that if you're going to be my disciple, that is the commitment that it takes. My soul, my life, my all. Jesus set the example through prioritizing his relationship with God and committing to God's work above all else. I want to ask you today, is there some relationship in your life that means more to you than your relationship with Is there something of this life that you are committed to more than God's work? If we are to love God as he desires, that we need to lay aside anything, reprioritize as needed to make sure that he comes.
Would you bow your heads and close your eyes today?